Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of Tech Swamp. We have our hosts and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Hello, Caitlin. What's up? You know, just membership chilling. Always chilling. And of course, myself, Alex. So this month, we're taking a deep dive into the Epic v. Apple ruling with Parab Shah of member company Themos. We'll be talking about the ruling itself and what it means for Epic and Apple, but most importantly, what it means for our small business member companies like Vimos. But before we get into that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. In honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, which takes place every year from September 15th to October 15th, we're celebrating the contributions of Guatemalan entrepreneur and computer scientist scientist, uh, Luis Von Ahn, the inventor of the CAPTCHA. The year was 2000, and Luis, also known as Big Lou, led a team at Carnegie Mellon University with the mission of combating the overwhelming number of bots pretending to be humans on the internet. They came up with what we know as the CAPTCHA, or Completely Automated Public Turing Test, to tell computers and humans apart. You know, the system where the user types a series of letters to prove that they're human. Well, it worked, but Big Lou was still not satisfied, agonizing over the fact that people were wasting time by typing nonsensical text to prove they're not a robot. So, in 2011, a little over a decade after the CAPTCHA became widely implemented, the ReCAPTCHA was born and used on all sites all over the internet. With the ReCAPTCHA, the general user experience was the same. Type the letters and numbers you see on screen to prove you're not a robot. But rather than random strings of letters and symbols, ReCAPTCHA had users translate images of real words and numbers taken from archival texts. The ReCAPTCHA led to millions of historical texts being translated, but as we know, the ReCAPTCHA became a code too easy for AI to crack and has been replaced with a new system. And the rest is tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in DC. Brad and Caitlin, what are the top tech headlines? You may have heard about a little thing called the Infrastructure and Jobs Investment Act, aka the Infrastructure Bill. (laughs) Well, we were hoping to hit you with an exciting legislative update this episode, especially after our members took to the hill for MAC 3. But there have been continued delays as details get worked out. And the details that need to be hashed out aren't just between D's and R's. In-party disagreements within the Democratic Party are the primary holdup. In the House, Speaker Pelosi has now mentioned delaying Thursday's vote again if the bill's human infrastructure counterpart doesn't get passed in tandem in the Senate. And speaking of the Senate, Senator Joe Manchin, one of the most influential members in Congress, told reporters that that won't happen. As for the Republicans, there is some in-party fighting as well as members in both chambers struggle to get the votes. We'll keep you posted on the final movements of the infrastructure bill in the next episode of Tech Swamp. And earlier today, our very own Morgan Reed testified before the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation at a hearing titled Protecting Consumer Privacy. During the hearing, Morgan highlighted the existing and future privacy harms that consumers and developers alike face when we don't have a strong privacy framework. Throughout his time testifying on the Hill, Morgan urged members of Congress to enact strong federal privacy legislation and to empower the Federal Trade Commission by setting the scope and purpose of the agency's authority and ensuring that it has the appropriate resources to do so. If you'd like to watch what went, what went down at this hearing, head over to the show notes. We may see some cybersecurity provisions include in the National Defense Authorization Act for 2022. 
Earlier this week, a bipartisan group of senators, all on the Senate Intelligence Committee, announced a bill that would require federal agencies, government contractors, and groups critical to national security to report cyber incidents to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, within 24 hours. This is one of many bills that have been introduced in response to last year's SolarWinds hack. We'll keep you posted on this bill's inclusion in the NDAA in future episodes of TechSwap. And that's all for what's brewing. And for this month's policy discussion, I'm going to throw it to Brad, Caitlin, and Parag. Thanks, Alex. And this month for Member Minutes, we're going to be joined by Parag Shah of member company Vimos for a discussion on the recent Epic v. Apple ruling. Hey, Parag, thanks for joining us on TechSwamp. My pleasure, Caitlin. Excited to be here. I think, actually, this is your first time on the podcast. Is that right, Brad? Oh, yeah. I think this is Parag's first time. (laughs) Well, welcome. Yeah, I've listened to it a lot, but... Thanks for uh, honoring me with inviting me on. Of course. No, thank you for joining us. (laughs) Well, so we're here, uh, other than just to have you on the podcast for your first time, uh, (laughs) to talk about the ruling in Epic v. Apple and what it means for Vimos and other small businesses in the app economy. But first, let's give our listeners a little context. Can you fill us in a little bit on what Vimos is? Absolutely. Um, Vimos is a data analytics company specifically for the hospitality industry. So we focus on restaurants, bars, nightclubs, breweries, um, and really trying to help them understand who their guests are that are walking in and out of their locations. Um, Most restaurants and bars really don't know who's coming in and out, and we have a solution that provides them with that information. Our solution is kind of broken down into two worlds. Um, one is what I call the internal facing, really used by the, the restaurant or bar themselves, and the other one is a consumer facing app. Our restaurant facing one is what we call kind of an intelligent ID verification system. So a lot of bars um, around the country use our app. Um, you can download it on the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, and they allow them to scan IDs or validate government issued IDs, um, primarily for of age locations, you know, bars for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to validate the ID to make sure this person's of age, it's a, a real ID. Um, and then we also call the first intelligent ID verification system because it's the first one to connect to what is called a POS system or a point of sale system that most restaurants and bars use to ring up checks. Um, the reason it's connected to the POS system is because it allows restaurants to really understand what guests are spending once they're inside, get an understanding of where they're coming from, how much they're spending, how their marketing efforts are working, things that really e-commerce has taken for granted uh, since the mid to late 2000s. Uh, we're, we're able to do that now with physical brick and mortar locations. Um, and then we also have a consumer app, um, which is called Vimos Pay. And it essentially allows any consumer to view, split, and pay their check at restaurants or bars across the country. Uh, We really wanted to reduce or even remove the pain point of waiting for your check at the end of your uh, experience at a restaurant or bar. 
Um, and you can just you know pull up the check on your phone without the need for the server to bring a check over to you, and you could pay that check uh, very conveniently and easily. So we're really building that side of the, the, the company out, and we've got some really exciting things we're doing on the payment side. Very cool, yeah. It sounds like Vimos is alive and well at the moment. Uh, obviously, Vimos heavily re relies upon a vibrant app ecosystem, interoperability, and most of all, platforms to exist. Before we get into the details of the case specifically, can you explain the relationship between Vimos and some of the platforms you use, like Apple's App Store? Absolutely, Brad. So. We use a lot of platforms. Obviously, you know, app, the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store are the two main ones that people are aware of, um, and we, we heavily rely on both of those platforms. Um, especially on the ID verification side, uh, prior to our application deploying, uh, most of the bars or restaurants, if they even had any type of system to validate IDs, you know, outside of a bouncer's eyes, it would be physical hardware that would cost thousands of dollars for them to purchase and physically bring into the location. Um, now, because of, of the app stores, we're able to deploy a very simple app, use existing hardware on somebody's phone, um, like the camera, to be able to take a picture or, or identify that information on the ID quickly and, and easily and pull the results um, that, that this hardware that you know used to cost thousands of dollars now costs $35 a month to have. So we heavily rely on these platforms. Um, and also there's just like a trust that people have when they download apps on the Apple App Store. Um, they go, hey, this is gonna work. It's gonna work with my hardware. Um, and we, I don't have to sort of have additional technical support that I might if I buy a physical product off the shelf. I might have to, you know, call that company, figure out what's going on. Someone might have to come, you know, be sent over. There's a lot of really good um, hardware that we have access to on the device and information if things do go wrong to be able to access that stuff. Really quickly, I know that um, Vimos was able to kind of pivot during the pandemic um, and used platforms um, as a way to do that. Um, you mentioned Vimos Pay earlier. Um, can you kind of talk about the way that that was rolled out and how platforms, how Vimos was able to use platforms to to create that pivot um, during during COVID nineteen? Absolutely. Um, you know, COVID nineteen was obviously devastating to the hospitality industry and. We're, st we're still not through it, you know. A lot of restaurants and bars are still struggling, um, especially in select cities and, and, and more dense cities where COVID is even more prevalent. Um, it, it's still hurting, you know. So we were able to really um, focus our efforts to help these restaurants during that time. And, you know, what we're doing with Vimos Pay has been tried a number of times before, but really actually has failed um, when you dive into it because platforms didn't exist at the level they do today. And so it's really, really a benefit for companies like Vimos to rely on these platforms. Uh, we talked about the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store, and I think a lot of people are very uh, aware of those just because they use it every day um, in their lives, you know, whether it's downloading apps, you know, using apps, being able to even deposit checks from their phone, just simple things like that. We also rely a lot on other platforms that exist um, that people are less aware of. Um, for example, on the point of sale side, there are a lot of platforms that these point of sale companies have. 
Um, many of the newer point of sale companies that have you know launched in the last five years or so, they are platforms and they work and operate very similar to the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. Uh, they allow us to integrate seamlessly within their hardware, seamlessly with their environments. Many of them, if not all of them, have an, an, an mini app store built in for restaurant owners to be able to you know, add integrations or add apps, so to speak, right from their portal, and it works really, really well. Um, we also integrate with some of what, what I call legacy point-of-sale systems, um, older point-of-sale systems that have been around since you know really the 70s and 80s. Uh, they require us to have a lot more touch points and it's a lot more complex for us to gain access to the data that we're looking at. Um, so you know we heavily rely on these platforms for Vmails pay. Um, and you mentioned the the sort of that pivot that happened with us. Well, you know it it so happened we were working on this and COVID nineteen hit and we were able to sort of lean in even further with Vmails pay and make it really seamless for sort of this contactless experience to happen. But I think. Consumers have wanted this for a long time, right? No one really enjoys this experience where the where you wait nine to fifteen minutes to get a server's attention for the check to come over, and then you put a credit card in this little billfold wallet <laughs> thing, and it goes away for God knows how long, and then comes back, and we sign this piece of paper, and none of us, at least you know, I don't uh, even grab the receipt anymore. I just leave after signing and adding a, and adding a tip. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> someone will enter this correctly, you know, you know, in 30 minutes or an hour or whenever their shift is over. So yeah, I mean, you know, platforms, it's, it's almost funny that we're having this conversation because I think platforms are just like everyday use now. Like we don't, I don't even consider that when I'm developing, um, you know, if something isn't a platform, I'm almost like, yeah, I don't want to work with this. I don't want to, I don't want to develop on this because the amount of effort it's going to take is not worth it. Um, so it's it's interesting that everything is has is going that direction and has gone that direction, and 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 it's really helping developers and third party integration partners out a lot. Absolutely. So now that we're kind of able to understand a little better, you know, how heavily that that Vimos and, and other, you know, small businesses in the app economy rely on platforms and the and the services and benefits that platforms provide. I want to talk about the Epic v. Apple ruling. Earlier this month, um, Judge Gonzalez Rogers ruled that Apple is not a monopoly in the mobile app space with iOS or its in-app purchasing system. She went on to order Epic to pay damages for violating its developer agreement with Fortnite. However, she then ordered Apple to remove its anti-steering rules, the policies that prohibited developers from telling users about alternatives to their in-app purchase system. Parag, as a developer, what do you see as the wins and the losses with this ruling? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the biggest win for for developers like myself is just that, you know, they were ruled to be not a monopoly and continue to exist the way they do. Um, I think all of us think that there's ways that companies like Apple can improve. And honestly, they've reached out and, and are continuous to, continuously asking for feedback from developers like us. But overall, it is really, really amazing being on their platform because the amount of customer service we get even with 
um, being on the Apple App Store, I couldn't imagine how many resources we would need if we had a physical product that like we shipped out to these restaurants and bars. Um, it is just ridiculous. I mean, Apple just makes it so easy, and and, and I in Apple and, and Google is is very similar. They just make it very very easy for us to develop on their platform, us to scale on their platform, um, and and not require all this external pieces that traditionally would have happened. Um, one of the big things that I felt that was really ruled in this, you know, Epic versus Apple case was the fact that, you know, Apple didn't have to sort of release and, and remove these restrictions from sideloading apps. Um, people don't realize how, how hard or difficult that can be, that process can be from a developer standpoint. Um, I do remember a time, I, I don't even know how many years ago to be honest, Caitlin, but I remember a time when I first started developing on the Apple App Store that they really didn't have a lot of the tools that they do today, primarily a tool called TestFlight. Um, but they didn't have some of these tools where it made um, testing very difficult. So when when we deploy an app, we internally deploy it to a number of iOS devices. Um, we test them to make sure it's working properly, there aren't any bugs, um, before we sort of release it to the masses. And at first it was frustrating because there wasn't a great way to, to deploy these in a test environment where Google had always had the ability to do this quickly out of the box. But Apple has really gotten a lot better and they've built these great tools for developers that allow us to you know push these apps in a testing environment first before pushing it out to you know essentially anyone on the app store to download it um and and so the need for side loading apps today is is just less and less um important as it was you know back in the day so for us it's really really great to have people able to download our app search in the app store which i think is another really great thing for small businesses like us where you know we're not spending a million bucks a month on marketing but people can search keywords they can find you know if they're looking for id verification they literally just go in the app store they they search id verification we're i think the first app that pops up actually now and boom they can install us and try it right yeah um and we don't, you know, that doesn't cost us, you know, I don't want to say any money, but relatively, you know, uh, a small amount of money compared to what we would have done if we were to, you know, someone had to buy our software from like Best Buy or CompUSA back in the day or some, you know, <laughs> brick and mortar store um, I, that couldn't have been cheap. So I think the level of trust that's created by people that are willing to download apps today is something that we take for granted a lot. Um, the fact that like people, average consumers that don't understand how their phone even probably works are willing to see an app, hit the download button and just expect Apple has sort of certified this app and it isn't mm-hmm. going to cause, you know, their phone to explode in their hand. And, and that's a big, and that's to me, that's a really, really big deal because, Previous to this, you know, people are still wary of downloading apps from a browser or, you know, on their computer through a third party site. Like people are just concerned about this because who knows what type of malware or viruses uh, could be on there. And there's no sort of restriction or something that's happening that's stopping that 
um, that developer from putting something on your computer that you're not aware of. No, absolutely. That totally makes sense. So what you're saying is platforms provide a certain standard of security that allows consumers to safely download apps and things like that to their device. If some of those safety and security measures are removed to allow sideloading, consumers might not have that same secure user experience and that could impact their willingness to download apps at all. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that insight. Judge Gonzalez Rogers discussed Apple's response to complaints and the relationship with developers on their platform. She also said, quote, Apple does a poor job of mediating disputes between a developer and its customer. As some made comments about the app review process, as a developer with multiple apps on the App Store, do you think this is an accurate representation of what it feels like to be a developer on the iOS platform? It definitely isn't for us, but I will say that I'm not in the gaming world, and so we've got just a better relationship with our customers than a completely consumer-facing gaming product, um, you know, such as what Epic, Epic produces. Um, so I would say we don't have that issue. We have relationships with our customers. They reach out to us directly. Um, we haven't really had any disputes, so to speak, that Apple would even have to play um, in the middle of. I think the most frustrating thing for us is just potentially a bad review from someone who doesn't understand our product. But mm. even then, Apple allows us to respond to that publicly. So even if we do get a bad review, someone else that might see it can at least see our response and go, okay, well, you know, they didn't understand what our app even did or the functionality. And so maybe they, they look at that differently um, than, you know, just a simple bad review in which we couldn't even respond to that. It just sits out there. Okay, and real quick, Prague, um, I know that Apple has recently rolled out some features for developers, you know, when it comes to that app review process that the judge referred to. Can you kind of talk about some of those new features um, that the platforms are rolling out and what that means for you as a developer? Absolutely, Caitlin. So I would say in the past, just to kind of go back, um, Apple was a little frustrating to work with because the review times could be really long and and Google back in the day actually had sort of an instant rollout so to speak um, now Google has uh, a more you know slower rollout because they they do test the apps and, and they roll it out um, with the developers where Apple's actually sped up that process a lot which has been extremely helpful for developers I still remember back in the day we used to Google and there were sites out there that would show the average Apple wait time currently. And sometimes it would be up to you know a week. And many of us developers can't really wait a week for the new update to be pushed out because there might be bugs or issues or maybe we're really excited about a new feature we're about to roll out to our, our customers. Um, and it, it, was, it was a process. Recently, Apple has really made a huge effort um, to change this in a positive way. They have lowered expectations, so most apps are rolled out within 48 hours, um, and even more so, I would say, within 24 hours. Um, but even within the app process, um, it can be really frustrating in the past when app, Apple would reject your app. Um, it could reject it for a number of reasons. It doesn't mean the app was bad. It you know We didn't follow something 
um, a guideline that they had laid out. We had missed something within our development process. Um, so we actually find that to be pretty helpful, but it was kind of frustrating when we were rejected um, because we sort of had to restart the, the process with them again. Now they've rolled out some really cool tools and features where if you are rejected, um, you can actually chat with the, the app tester on Apple's side directly within the App, app Store Connect platform. Um, you can send them information about how to test your app. You can um, send them information about certain integrations that you have that they need to be aware of um, before they start testing. So the communication has really spiked and I think that's a big reason why um, developers have been a lot happier. They've been able to speed up the, develop, the, the testing process and the rollout process of new applications. Um, I know for us that's been really huge. Um, and now when we release apps, we're less stressed about how long it might take for our customers to see the update. And that is so great to hear. Um, well, Prague, thanks so much for joining us for a kind of business impact update on the Epic v. Apple trial. And it's important to note that this is not totally over. You know, Epic has already filed an appeal, so there's going to be some more movement expected around this case. And we're going to be sure to keep you posted in future episodes of Tech Swamp. All right, that's all for Member Minutes. Prague, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. Thanks for having me, Brad. I really appreciate it. And now it's time for Random Identifier. Brad, it's you. You're up first. Of course. Well, first of all, I just want to say that live shows are totally back in music, yeah. and it is a liberating feeling to be at venues with that energy again. I saw my first non-Dave Matthews Band show of the year uh, last weekend, and it was just fantastic. Um, but the band I want to highlight this episode is going to be Mount Joy, who I'm seeing next Friday. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, super excited. They're a Philly-based band, and so far they've only really opened up for other uh, musicians, but now they're on their own tour, so it's going to be really cool to see them in a small room instead of opening for the Lumineers at like a huge basketball stadium. <laughs> That's so exciting. I love that for you. Yeah. What venue are they going to be at? They're actually at the Anthem. I thought that was too yes. big for them, but I, I guess they're oh, getting pretty popular that. pretty quickly. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm yeah. thrilled. That's exciting. Um, Caitlin, what about you? What do you have for us? Um, well, actually, I was reminded of this today uh, in a Slack conversation with you and our <laughs> communications director, Ashley Durkin Rixey. Um, just like a little piece of pop culture that I think is probably like the the best um, <laughs> in forgotten pop culture of the um, 2010s, okay. which is when uh, Gap rebranded their logo. It was um, a nightmare. <laughs> it was the worst logo <laughs> that ever happened. So apparently in 2010, um, <laughs> they decided that they needed a rebrand from their classic Gap logo that we that we know and love um and they paid um you know a creative ad agency a hundred million dollars to do it oh my gosh um the logo lasted for six days mm -hmm. before gap changed it back um i tried to google how much money that they lost um it seems like i'm not able to get a totally clear figure but in that 
six-day period, um, shares fell by 10%. Oh, my goodness. I mean, why change something that's classic? Like, why do that? Who? I just, I want to, you know what? I would like to have dinner with the person who made that decision. And I would like to look them, like, look them in the eye over a meal and just question them and, and all of their choices, really. Yeah, it was seriously messed up. And, like, I will include in the show notes what it looked like. And people can probably remember, um, re-remember a memory they tried to black out because it was probably the <laughs> yeah. hideous, most hideous logo they've ever seen. Yeah, well, we'll include a trigger warning just in case. <laughs> yeah, TW, the gap. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing it's listed as one of the worst logos of all time. Because it was, especially, like, a, such a classic logo as Gap. Like, it's yeah. not, Yeah. I would love to hear, okay, even though it's, you know, whatever. I would love to hear Kanye West's thoughts on the Gap logo redesign. Because oh I know it would be good. You know would he it? wouldn't really talk about the Gap logo, though. He would but say, he, like, one thing about it, and then there would be, like, 20 minutes of something else. I would like That's to give true. him, like, uh, I'd like to put him under a spell that makes him focused <laughs> to only give me the information that I want, and I don't want any ranting and raving. I just want the honest opinion about the logo. And Kim Kardashian West, if you're listening, I know she you guys is. are getting a divorce, but, like, just, you know, maybe throw tech swamp his way so we can get this answer. <laughs> I, I support. I support this. Thanks, Kim, for all your help. Um, <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I feel like I only talk about movies and TV shows that I'm watching, but um, I'm gonna keep doing that because that's what I'm doing with my life. So um, <laughs> I'm here to talk about, we're entering spooky season, which is my favorite season. Um, and yeah. And um, during this season, there's lots of great things to watch always, you know, old classics, Hocus Pocus, arguably the best. We don't have to talk about it. Halloween Town, also one of the best. Again, don't have to talk about it. What I'm here to talk about, <laughs> what I'm here to talk about is Midnight Mass, which is a new show on Netflix. It is by the same guy who did The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, which I will admit I was very late to the parade on. I just watched The Haunting of Hill House and I haven't watched uh, Bly Manor yet. But Midnight Mouse is so good, you guys. Like, it's so good. I don't know what I can say without spoiling things, but, like, let me just tell you, it's a beautifully written, beautifully acted, like, beautifully shot, really interesting TV show that's, like, spooky but also smart. Um, And I enjoyed every moment of my binge watch over the weekend uh, and highly, highly, highly recommend it. That's all I have to say about that. I will be watching it because those other two shows, uh, Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, are some very amazing spooky shows that I love. So I'm very excited for this. Yeah. It's been added to the queue. Yeah. And I would also say, like, one of the things that's very cool about those shows is that it's, like, it's spooky, but it's, like, about so much more than being spooky. Like, some spooky mm-hmm. things are spooky for the sake of being spooky. But this right. is about, like, you know, those two movies or the first two shows um, were like really about like families and one was about grief and, and this one is like different, but like the same in that, like, it's not about what it's about. Like, Oh my God, you guys, it's great. Okay. Anyway, highly recommend. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, all right, folks, that is it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search Texmore. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. 
And of course, we would love a rate review. Five stars only, please. <laughs> and that is all for today, folks. Everyone, say bye. Bye. bye.